0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry.
1: Hey, I'm here with uh, Richard Hughes. We're at the Stone Campbell Conference, and you just did a a, a session on your book, and I kind of wanted to ask you about what's your new book.
0: The new book is the second edition of a, a book that was published in 2003 called Myths America. M Y T H S, Myths America Lives by. But the new edition, it's a second edition, but it's an entirely new book. Yeah, yeah, tell us, tell us. Okay, so here's the background to it. So in 2012, James Cohn's The Cross and the Lynching Tree mm-hmm. came out, I think, in 2010 or 2011. Mm-hmm. One of my former students at Pepperdine named Raymond Carr. Raymond went on to Graduate Theological Union, got a PhD, came back to Pepperdine to teach, African American theologian. So when Raymond reads Cohn's Across the Lynching Tree, Raymond wants to put together a session at the National AAR meeting, American Ketum of Religion, mm-hmm. on that book. So Cohn gives him permission. So Raymond proceeds to put the session together. He invites four scholars. To be on the panel, three black scholars, and his old professor, me. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you were the only, only non-only you know, white person on the panel, yeah. and you know. And it, of course, if Raymond asked me, of course I'm going to say yes. I mean, I love Raymond. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever Raymond wants me to do, I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. But when I hung up the phone. I thought to myself, oh Hughes, <laughs> what have you done? You know, what, what, what do I have to say, as a white man, about the lynching tree? And the lynching tree, that's sacred. Oh. And uh, I just thought, I what can I say about this? I can't critique the book. And I can't talk about the lynching tree. So I thought, well, at the very least, what I could do is tell a bit of my story in light of Cohn's constructs about race. So I talked about growing up in West Texas, I was born in 43, so in the 50s in West Texas, and absorbing these myths, these great American myths, you know, the myth of the chosen nation, the myth of the Christian nation, the innocent nation. Stuff that we, no one teaches this to us, we just absorb it by Mm -hmm. osmosis, it's in the air. Right. And I talked about how those myths had shaped my understanding of the nation and of race. And when I sat down, after making my little speech, sat down with the other panelists, this black scholar, also on the panel, his name was James Noel. I say was because he passed away about a year ago. Very distinguished historian slash theologian at San Francisco Theological Seminary. James Noel leans over to me and he says, Professor, you left out the most important of all the American myths. You just flat left it out. Mm-hmm. I said, Really? What did I leave out? He said, You left out the myth of white supremacy. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I was, when he said that to me, I was 69 years old. Uh-huh. And, you know, that had never once, I mean, I knew there were white supremacists, but the idea that white supremacy was a defining myth uh-huh. for the American nation, that idea had never once crossed my mind. So when Noel says this to me, I hear him, and I'm respectful. Mm-hmm. But a big part of me is really, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, there's some skepticism, but the more he he put me on a journey, and I began to read, I began to think. Obama was president. I began to observe, and I finally concluded that he, is exactly right Mm -hmm. and that the reason we don't get it and when i say we i mean white people like me Mm -hmm. the reason we don't get it is because we don't even have to think about it it's of course it's not on my radar screen why would we think about it it's not my issue it's the nature of a (laughs) myth. that's exactly right but black people think about it every single day and they understand it, and that's why for Noel it was as clear, as plain as the nose in your face, mm-hmm. and he was astounded that I didn't get it. Yeah. So when I when I when I revised it, so I went back to the University of Illinois Press after I began to process this. I said, what would you think about doing a second edition of Myth America Lives By? And I told them what had happened, and they said, let's do it. So. I wrote an entire new chapter, first chapter now is on the myth of white supremacy, and then I revised every other chapter in the light of and the conclusion I came to is this, is that the myth of white supremacy, the other myths, like the myth of the Christian nation, the myth of the Innocent Nation, one of one of the functions of the other myths is to shield us from discerning the myth of white supremacy, which we don't want to acknowledge. Yeah. You know, we're quick to say there are white supremacists out there, those mm-hmm. bad guys, but that's not us. Mm-hmm. We're, we're Christians, we're innocent, we're, you know, we're part of this. You know, So at any rate, so I rewrote the book. But then, here's one other piece I'll share with you. So when I got the book finished, I got the manuscript finished, and I sent the manuscript out to a number of readers, some white, some black, and one of my white readers is is a man that I respect enormously. He's progressive. He's deeply concerned about racism, social justice, the the things I care about, the things you care about. He's deeply concerned about these things. He He read the manuscript, and he wrote back, he said, Richard, he said, I think you're right to have a chapter on white supremacy, but don't make it. The driving American myth. It's, it's, it's not. This, it doesn't work. Well, of course, if I were to take his advice seriously, I mean, take it to heart, I'd have to read. read I mean, I'd finish the manuscript. Uh-huh. He's telling me to read. Yeah. And I, I'm thinking, I, I don't think he's right. But I take his comments, minus the name, so no one will know who wrote that, and I send the comments to some of my black readers. Well, they're just apoplectic. I mean, they're just—how can he miss it? Mm. And, I mean, and what—what—and what occurred to me—and this is being reinforced for me over and over and over again in the month since. Black people perceive all black people perceive this so clearly because they have to. It, right. It's the only way they can explain their experience. White people like me, we simply don't get it. And we don't get it because we don't have to get it.
1: We can forget
0: the we can issue. Forget it. It's not even an issue. It's uh-huh. not, I mean, I get up and live my life, do my thing. Why would I even need to have a thought to it? Uh-huh. So so the book, the book is primarily an exercise in listening. And what I'm trying to do in this book is listen to the voices of probably 50 Black voices, I lift up, male and female, from all periods of American history, but they're saying the same thing, and they're critiquing these the myth of the innocent nation. You know, they see right through this stuff. Uh-huh. The myth of the Christian nation. You know, Frederick Douglass just, it completely sees through it. It's uh-huh. just all farce. It's all facade. You know, from the point of view of black Americans of the nineteenth century. As
1: is the Christianity connected with
0: it. Oh, absolutely. It's a farce. Uh-huh. It's a joke. Uh-huh. Yeah. So here are these people talking about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. <laughs> so another book that really bears this out is Cohn's The Cross of the Lynching uh-huh. Tree. Because his point is that the well, between eighteen seventy seven and 1940, thousands of black people were lynched. And often I mean, we're looking at white person wrong, or yeah. and, and on trumped up charges. Right. Men, mainly men, sometimes women, sometimes children, lynched. And we like to think we, you know, we know that happened. But most white people I think like to think, well, there are three or four tough people who, three or four tough people who went out and did this. Well, no, that's not at all the way. That often it was announced in the newspaper, like the Atlanta Constitution would make an announcement that on such and such a day, certain such a person is going to be 10-20,000 people show up for the lynching. It's like a sport. And and when you think of it, who were these people? In Georgia, in Alabama, all the, city, the all the respectable, people all the good respectable Christian, Christian people. people. That's right, and. And, and Cohen's point is the resemblance between the lynching tree and the cross of Jesus where you lynch a man on a tree yeah, lynch an innocent person on a tree the, the parallels are so striking and no one seemed to get it because we don't think that so these are all some of the ironies, the deep ironies that. A part of our history that we Christians especially have got to think about and come to terms with if we're going to have
1: any healing. Your reading of James Cohn being on this book panel and the comments by Mr. Noel mm-hmm. uh, caused you to write this book and then to, to, and so if you had to tie that in to Christianity. In other words, is the issue here not just that uh, in some way that the church is blind, but that in fact Christianity is a support of the blindness?
0: Well, Paul, now that that you put it that way, well, yeah, uh, Christianity in terms of the teachings of Jesus, clearly is not a support. Mm -hmm. Uh, Obviously, the teachings of Jesus would undermine all of that kind of white supremacy and hatred and all that kind of thing. But as it turns out, the Christian church in America, in many instances, let me put it that way, I started to say across the board that would be an overstatement, (laughs) but in many, many instances, is completely complicit. One of the things that... I'm going to tell two things that will make this point. One is back to James Cohen's book, and one is Frederick Douglass. In his autobiography, uh, Frederick Douglass, who was born a slave, uh, was escaped slavery, became the great abolitionist. And Douglass in his narrative talks about the Christian faith in the United States. And he said he said the Christian faith and the Christian religion in this country is anything but Christian. He said, I have witnessed over and again where the the slave auction blocks stood adjacent to the church. Mm. And the church sanctions the sale of the slaves it all works hand in glove, and uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to read Please. this passage from Frederick Douglass because no one ever said it better than Douglas. But I think Douglas's words still hold very much. Now, truth. is this the new book or the? That's the new one. That's the brand that's new the book. The new edition. Mm-hmm. So that it's holds. come out. It's come out. Oh, yeah, now it's out. Here's Frederick Douglass. The church. Of this country. He says the church of this country. He's not saying in many instances, which is what (laughs) I said. He says the church of this country is not only indifferent to the wrongs of the slave, it actually sides with the oppressors. It is a religion which favors the rich against the poor, which exalts the proud above the humble which divides mankind into two classes, tyrants and slaves, which says to the man in chains, stay there, and to the oppressor, oppress on. It is a religion which may be professed and enjoyed by all the robbers and enslavers of mankind. It makes God a respecter of persons. And by the way, Whoever's listening to this should remember he didn't say the church, he didn't say the religion Jesus established. Right. He's right. saying the church of this country. Because Douglas is a Christian. A Christian. Deeply a Christian, yeah, right. right. It's a religion which may be professed and enjoyed by all the robbers and enslavers of mankind. It makes God a respecter of persons, denies his fatherhood of the race, and tramples in the dust the great truth of the brotherhood of man. All this we affirm to be true of the popular church and the popular worship of our land and nation. A religion, a church, and a worship which, on the authority of inspired wisdom, we pronounce to be an abomination In the sight of God. Here's another quote from Frederick Douglass. Revivals, I'm going to read two more. Okay. Revivals of religion and revivals in the slave trade go hand in hand together. The slave prison and the church stand near each other. The clanking of fetters and the rattling of chains in the prison and the pious psalm and solemn prayer in the church may be heard at the same time. The dealers in the bodies and souls of men rank their stand in the presence of the pulpit, and they mutually help each other. The dealer gives his bloodstained gold to support the pulpit, and the pulpit, in return, covers his infernal business with the garb of the Christian religion. One more quote. Between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. So wide that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy is a necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Indeed, I can see no reason. The most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity at all. That's Frederick Douglass, and I think he pretty well nails it. Uh So I'm going to say a word about James Cone before I say a word about Cone. Let me fast forward to the 1960s in the Church of Christ. Uh Yes, Church of Christ schools. Church of Christ colleges and universities were very slow to integrate. Brown versus Board of Education was 1954, and Church of Christ colleges drugged mm-hmm. their feet, drugged their feet, drugged their feet, and there there was in the Church of Christ, white people didn't know it because they had no connection to the Black Churches of Christ. Awesome. But the Black Churches had their own lectureships, had their own gospel paper. It's called the Gospel Echo. Mm-hmm. There was one particular black preacher, he edited the gospel anchor, his name was Hogan. And Hogan said about the Church of Christ, exactly what Frederick Douglass said about Christianity in the United States. He said, and he, he said this about the Abilene Christian, Harding College, he said, he said, don't even call them Christian. Mm-hmm. They're, they're not Christian schools, there's nothing Christian about them. Mm-hmm. And how in the world can they call themselves Churches of Christ? They're not that. There's something in time. See, black people get that.
1: And yet and he would have counted himself a member of the Church of Christ?
0: He would have, but there's a young man, I say young, he's probably 40 by now, named Wes Crawford. If you met it, Wes? Mm-hmm. Wes Crawford preaches for the uh, Glenwood Church of Christ in Tyler, Texas. Did a Ph.D. at Vanderbilt in history. Wrote a dissertation on black-white churches of Christ, and that came out in book form, and the book is called "Shattering the Illusion: Colon, How African American Churches of Christ Move from Segregation to Separation." And see, when Hogan was saying what he was saying in the '60s, they're moving; uh-huh. they're done with it. I mean, they were they were part of that large fellowship of. But in the 60s, they came to the conclusion, we're not going to do this anymore. So in a real sense, that the black churches of Christ have gone their way. And the white churches of Christ don't care, because uh-huh. they never knew anything about them anyway. Uh-huh. paid no attention to them. To the extent that they did pay attention to them. Do you know the story, Paul, about the National Christian Institute? Uh-huh. Tell us the story. Let me tell you the story. So it's 1941, and there are a lot of African-American members of Church of Christ in Nashville. So in 1941, these black members of the Church of Christ pooled their resources to create a school for their children. Of course, their children couldn't go to public schools. and It was called the Nashville Christian Institute. Fred Gray, who was the attorney for the Civil Rights Movement, mm-hmm. you know, Martin Luther King's attorney, Rosa uh-huh. went, His parents sent him to the National Christian Institute. That's where he went to school. Uh-huh. And the school flourished, it did well. But then they made a big mistake. They decided to begin adding to the board some white folks, especially very influential, very wealthy white people. Some with money, some with influence, some with both. Most of them connected in one way or another to Davidson College. I think it was in 1967, under the leadership of this, uh, under the leadership of the white people on the board now, the board votes to close NCI, (laughs) sell the property, and appropriate the proceeds to David Lipscomb College. Oh, man. Yeah. Oh, man. Never mind that. Ostensibly for scholarships for black youth. Never mind the fact that I think Lipscomb had had maybe one or two. or I mean, just mm-hmm. they'd had one or two black like, students, mm-hmm. maybe three. Well, the black community, the black Church of Christ, were incensed. They felt robbed you know, because they felt this school was built by, really, by fairly poor black people who mm-hmm. sacrificed to pool their money to build a school. Now, granted, by then... There was edu- integration in public schools, mm-hmm. so the, the school didn't serve as many kids as it had, but still it was their school, and they felt they had sacrificed, they had built it, and it was so right out from under them. So they, they secured attorney Fred Gray, who was Martin of the King's attorney, mm-hmm. Remember member of the Church of Christ, a preacher from Tuskegee, Alabama, mm-hmm. and Fred Gray sued David Luskin College. Wes Crawford tells all of this in his book, Shattering the Illusion. And in the book, Crawford says that when Gray got up to argue his case in court, the judge, who was a friend of some of the people on the board, the whites on the board, the judge turned his back. Uh, When Gray got up to speak, uh, turned his back. uh, Well, you know how that's going to end. And so, the judge ruled in favor of the college and against So, that tension between the black churches and the white churches in Nashville just simmered uh-huh. for years. And it's been relieved considerably in the last 10 to 12 years because of a new president who came to Lipscomb named Randy Lowry, who came from Pepperdine, where he launched the Strauss Institute for Dispute Resolution. I mean, Randy Lowry's a bridge builder. Whatever, you know, he's, he's good in many things, but he no. is a bridge builder. No. So Randy has really worked at building bridges, and it's really, really paid off. And no. I think the, the relationships now between Lipscomb and, and the black churches in the city of Nashville are greatly improving. But that's, no I promise to tell the story that James Cone tells. No. Cone's point is that white people, that white supremacy is Powerful. Blacks understand it because they've got to understand it, and whites don't, because we don't have to deal with it. We don't mm-hmm. we have to think about it. Mm-hmm. Why would I have to think about it? Get up, do my thing, go about my business, and mm-hmm. life is good for me. Why would I think about white supremacy? Yeah. Right? But blacks have to think about it. So the cross of the lynching tree. So Cohn tells that between eighteen seventy seven, the end of Reconstruction, then roughly nineteen forty. Thousands and thousands of blacks were lynched. Mm -hmm. And not just in the South. I mean, they were lynched in Duluth, Minnesota. Mm -hmm. You know, the the, the lynchings went all over. They could in California. Mm -hmm. It it was mainly in the South. Mm -hmm. They lynched for what? Usually trumped up charges. Maybe a black person looked at a white person wrong or Mm -hmm. didn't shuffle his feet the way he was supposed to shuffle his feet, or maybe he was a little too successful. They had a store and make a little, maybe a little competition with uh-huh. the white store. Right. So these people were lynched. And we, I think most white people who you know anything about this assume that these would have been vigilante groups, you know, maybe eight or ten guys on a horse with white hats and uh-huh. go out and grab a black guy. It wasn't. It was Sometimes it would have been that. Uh-huh. But often these lynchings were announced in the newspaper. So the Atlantic Constitution, for example, announces, on such as today, Sam Hose. He was a black man who was lynched. Sam Hose will be lynched. You know how many people turned up for Sam Hose is lynching? 20,000. 20,000 people. It was <laughs> sport. It was sport. Oh. And often they would, it's too horrible even to talk about it. Often they would burn them. Burn the Burn God. them, like, you know, yeah. make a fire. Hmm. Burn them with a stake, in effect. And then when they're Maybe still half alive, tie him up to the tree. I mean, it's just, well,
1: they would burn him alive. Then. Burn him
0: alive. Oh, yeah. yeah. And there, There's a book called Without Sanctuary, it's the title of the book. It's lynching photography. Because the photographers were there and they'd photograph the lynching, they'd photograph the crowd and make postcards. Mm-hmm. And white people would send these postcards to friends and, you know. One card read that this is the barbecue we attended last night. Uh-huh. It's just Now here's, here's Cohen's point. 20,000 people showed up at San Jose's Lentgy mm-hmm. in Georgia. Who were these people? They're not a, they're, it's not a bunch of rallies. Uh-huh. These are the people, these would be the members of the Church of Christ. Uh-huh. Members of uh-huh. the Baptist Church. Uh-huh. Methodists, Presbyterians.
1: All the good Christians.
0: All the good Christians, short of the lynching. Uh-huh. And Cone's point is not only that, but he, he takes the next step and he says, the, the, the startling thing is that these lynchings so closely resembled the crucifixion a lynching. You know, we mm-hmm. talk about hanging Jesus on the tree, hanging a black guy on the tree, hanging Jesus on the tree, innocent people. And they never seem to grasp the comparison Black people got the comparison. They wrote about it. Uh-huh. And in Cohen's book, he talks endlessly about the comparisons that the blacks would make between their suffering and the suffering of Jesus, uh-huh. their, the lynching of their friends, and the lynching of Jesus. So, so there's just a lot here. It a yeah. heavy stuff, yeah. but there's a lot here for Christians, I think, especially. We have a lot to learn, and then a lot to, not just to learn, but... We've got work to do. You know, if, if we claim to be Christian, we've got serious work to do.
1: I guess the, the pertinent question here is that. I mean, what to do, but I mean, the, the, of course, the lurking question is, it just seems like the institutional Christianity or the institutions connected with that Christianity, by definition, were not
0: Christian. Exactly. So that's that's exactly right. So what is the church in this country? I mean, there there are some churches, obviously, that are profoundly and deeply Christian. But I think there are many congregations, and not just churches of Christ, Catholic churches, Episcopal churches, Presbyterian churches, Baptist, I mean, you run the gamut, that function more as social clubs Mm. or people who are common economic, racial background, who share things in common, and there's a veneer of piety that gets kind of cast over the entire enterprise, and we come to church, and, uh, but it, it's you know, it was true even in, in some black churches. When we lived in Pennsylvania, I had a dear, dear friend, a black man, still is probably my dearest friend to tell you the truth, his name was Wayne Baxter. One day, Wayne was driving me through the projects in Harrisburg. He wanted, wanted to acquaint me with, uh-huh. with that history of the projects in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And, the, and it was built on a hill. At the bottom of the hill was a church. And, I, and it was a black church. And I said Wayne, I remember this vividly. I said, Well, I, I bet you this church does a lot of good in these projects. And he shook his head and he said, No. He said, Not really. He said, You know, it, what the message is be. Be warm and filled. Be warm and filled, Uh so that you know it's just you know uh when we reach a certain economic level. Yeah, that's part of the problem. We lose touch with the poor. We lose touch Uh with, and we don't want to soil our hands. Uh You know, so Uh we want to preserve our our club.
1: Uh Yeah. Every time I talk to you, the same. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, always, I always think, wow, well, this, is, this is heavy stuff. And, and it just seems that what we have, what we call religion, is the very thing, that what we call Christianity is the very thing the New Testament condemns. That it, it's not at all the, the faith of Christ.
0: No, not at all. Uh, ex- although there are certainly exceptions. Yeah. And I wouldn't say that's always the case. But here's the other thing. And I think Cone makes this point that black churches, because black people have been oppressed, and they understand what it means to be oppressed, and so their churches are not social clubs of the elite, right. not at all. They're 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 groups of oppressed people, and they read about a Jesus who was oppressed. So I think in many ways, oppressed people, whether they're black or white or Brown doesn't make a difference, but oppressed people hear the gospel far more easily Uh than people of means. Think, Paul, about the story that Jesus tells about the, well, the story the gospel tells about the rich young ruler Uh who comes to Jesus and what must I do to be inherited eternal life? And he says, well, keep the law. The guy says, well, I've done that my whole life. Jesus says, well, there's one more thing. Oh, yeah, what's that? Sell your goods and give to the poor, and follow me, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And the text says the guy went away sad because he <laughs> couldn't, because he yeah. And then Jesus makes the comment, how difficult it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And that's, I think, what we, and I'm part of this church. I'm, I'm, rich. I mean, I'm not rich like a lot of people are rich, but I'm rich, uh-huh. and I'm privileged. and we've got to realize that that Jesus was talking about us, how hard it is for the rich. So how do we then, somehow we've got to begin to see the world through the eyes of poor people and oppressed people, see the world through their eyes. I know I'm just going on and on, but I want to make one more point, if I could. Uh I've often thought, you know, what we say in this country is when you go to the polls to vote, vote your self-interest. I don't think that's true at all. Uh, uh. I think when Christians go to the polls to vote, we should vote the interests of the people Jesus calls the least of these. Uh. I'm doing well. I don't need to uh. vote my self-interest. Uh. I'm fine. But there are a lot of people not doing well. And that's the least I can do, is to, to try to do something on their behalf. But that's just the beginning. There's so much more we should be doing. So
1: let me give you a definition, following the title of your own book and this conversation. A definition of Christianity, if you will. That Christianity is all about exposing myths and people who are committed to these myths that you've listed, the sorts of myths that you have. And you're saying that one of the primary myths is the myth of white supremacy. Mm -hmm that if we're holding to these myths, that we cannot possibly be followers of Jesus?
0: Not really. Another way to put this, Paul, is is a myth, the way I use the term, the myth is a story or a narrative that gives us meaning. Uh It it may be true, it may be false, that's irrelevant, Uh but the point is it's a story that we live by, it gives us meaning. So the biblical story, from that point of view, would be a myth, right? I mean, Again, it's not saying it's untrue, uh-huh. but a myth is a story that gives us meaning. But the biblical, the Bible is a narrative. It's a story, it's a narrative of God's mighty acts from creation to the consummation of the end of time. Uh-huh. This is, that's the biblical saga. So the question, I think, for us as American Christian is, which narrative do we live into? Do we live into the narrative of America, the chosen people, America, the Christian nation, America, the innocent nation, do we live in the narrative that Jesus taught us? It's a very different narrative, entirely different.
1: And isn't there some qualities, in other words, it's not just competing myths, Oh, we got the Christian myth and these in other words, I, as you're saying this, I'm thinking of the whole Bolmanian demythologizing. Mm-hmm. And then some you know then there's the idea. Well no, actually with a narrative theology, we recognize that narrative is very much part of it. But I think what part of this is that when you're describing myths, what you're describing is ideologies. And ideology is something that we believe in because it's to our advantage to believe in. I'm not sure that's true in the immediate sense. In other words, uh, I think in the long run, that Christianity is in fact a reality. It is to our advantage. But I think in the immediate circumstance, it may put us on the lynching tree.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, in the long run, it's to our advantage. In the short term, it looks like, well, to use the language of uh, John the Revelator, in the book of Revelation, the temptation of the Christians was to bow the knee to Rome. And if you bow the knee to Rome, you're going to have all kinds of advantages. Mm-hmm. And if you refuse to bow the knee to Rome, you bow. And it's interesting, we talk about in the Church of Christ, in the Christian Church, we, we've talked for years about the restoration of primitive Christianity. Well, the fact of the matter is, in the early church, if you signed on to be a Jesus follower, in, say in the 2nd century or the 3rd century, uh-huh. if you signed on to that, you knew, you had to know that you might well be signing your death warrant. If you signed on to follow Jesus, say in the 2nd century or the 3rd uh-huh. century, you might well pay the ultimate price. Uh-huh. We don't think in those terms. We sign on so casually. Yeah, it doesn't cost anything much to be a Christian. In
1: fact, it may be it to our advantage. Depends, sure, <laughs> in a Christian nation. Yeah,
0: I mean, yeah, Christianity becomes equated with being a good, moral, upright citizen.
1: So the, to the degree that it is, uh, I, I mean, what you're describing. Yeah. I think, and and maybe what we're missing in the New Testament. I don't know if you've seen David Bentley Hart's recent translation. He's done a whole translation of the Bible, or, or the New Testament, not the Old Testament. And the thing that he brings out, that he says just as inescapable in the New Testament that we tend to ignore, Jesus is not saying that it is the love of money. He's saying, actually, it's money. That, you, that he's equating, that is, if you've got money, as you just told the story, in some way, wealth itself, it really doesn't matter, but just the fact of having it is an obstruction to being a follower
0: of Christ. It is. Yeah, it is. And that's why I think some of the most faithful churches in this country have been black churches. Because hmm. they've understood what it means to be theology, they get it. Because their lives, they lived that. They they lived the cross. One of the things Cohn mentions in his book, he has a chapter where he contrasts Reinhold Niebuhr and Martin the King. And he says, Niebuhr, and of course Cohn taught at Union for many, many years, where Niebuhr taught. And he said, Niebuhr placed the cross at the center of his theology, but he never really saw the implications of it. Mm-hmm. Never fully understood the implications, never lived out the implications, and thought, and he thought that, it, that it's impossible to really live out the implications. So, you know, his theology of realism, you know, like yeah. nonviolence, for example, is something you care about, but mm-hmm. it's not realistic. You've got to be realistic, you've got to live in the real world. And he was the premier theologian of that the period. Exactly, of, of that period. Whereas Cain understood that the cross is it. the cross is not something you wear around your neck, it's something you bear, and it may take you to your grave. And it
1: did for him. The problem is, of course, that our religion gets in the way of Christianity, and the religion that we have about the cross is not what you've just described. It's not what Cohn is describing. The religion that we have about the cross is that God does that to Jesus. And of course the point is, well no, actually Herod and the, the ruling powers and the, the, the principal religious leaders and the Jews, they're the ones that did that to Jesus. As long as we imagine that it's Jesus, that, or the God that d- does violence to Christ, The cross is no problem to us because we just picture that as an exchange between the Father and the Son that in some way satisfies the anger of God and uh, really doesn't have much to do with us other than saving us from God's wrath Mm -hmm. and God's anger. So that the lie from hell is perhaps this understanding of the cross that we get, I think, certainly through John Calvin, but that we get also in uh, divine satisfaction in and through Anselm of Canterbury.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, so who killed Jesus? It was the authorities, the principalities and the powers. And why do they kill him? Because he lifted up the people that they didn't want to lift up. The people, they're building the empire on the backs of the poor. He takes the side of the poor. And how people can read the New Testament and fail to get that is beyond me. I think it I mean, takes a lot of training. Amen. It must. Because if you just pick up you <laughs> read the Gospels, read the truth. What is Jesus talking about oh. every time he opens his mouth? Mm-hmm. He's talking about he's, he's with the poor, living with the poor, lifting up the poor, lifting up oppressed people. Matthew Matthew twenty five, you know, the shepherd separates the all the people of the earth into the sheep and the goats mm-hmm. and the and the the sheep he invites them into the kingdom because he says it's interesting what he says and what he doesn't say he never says because you come to the kingdom because you're baptized the right way or you didn't use instrumental music or Uh, you got your theology none of that he says I was hungry you gave me something to eat it's pretty simple I was thirsty you gave me something to drink I was naked you clothed me I was sick and in prison you came to me you know, I was a stranger you welcomed me. come on in. So
1: if our religion gets in the way of our doing those things, those things
0: then we got bad religion.
1: It's, it's bad, bad religion. religion
0: it's bad religion.
1: If our theology, if our academics, mm-hmm. if our in other words, I, I think about this as someone who's uh, devoted so much that I think that what it comes down to is that we can love our theory of truth, we can love our doctrine in place of Christ.
0: Oh, sure. That's right. Exalt the doctrine, exalt our theories. And and furthermore, and we make it all otherworldly, I mean, the way you mm. were talking about the, mm. the atonement theories, mm. God killed Jesus. And so the point of the cross, then, is God kills Jesus so that we get off scot-free and we can go to heaven when we die. Maybe I mean, you... That maybe, kind of misses the whole point.
1: It, I mean, I, I guess I'm slow to coming to this because... Penal substitution, that understanding, is just pure Calvinism. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, you know, that is Calvinism. And yet, as in the Church of Christ, the Christian churches, we've prided ourselves on not being Calvinist. And yet, it seems that the very heart of our understanding of the New Testament is yes, that very theology. Is that theology. Yeah, theology,
0: yeah. I mean... Well, but here's to me is the irony now. Of course, you're in the Christian church. You grew up in that wing, and I grew up in the Church of Christ. So I can't speak for this wing that you grew up in, but I can certainly speak for the wing I grew up in. So we prided ourselves on being the one true church. The great irony is we virtually never, and I underscore the word never, preached. The two themes most central to the Christian gospel. Number one, God's unmerited grace. Mm-hmm. Never heard that as a kid growing mm-hmm. up. Just what it was all wrong. Get track together. Mm-hmm. Didn't follow the rules. You'll save yourself. We didn't preach God's grace. And the yeah. other thing we didn't preach is the phrase that Jesus uses time and time again, the kingdom of God. And the kingdom in the New Testament, is so often connected in, in the con, If you read, you know, where you come across the word, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, in Matthew, the context is often caring for oppressed people, standing with marginalized people. So to my mind, I've come to think of the gospel as a message that has a, as a, has a vertical and a horizontal dimension. The vertical is God extends His grace, to me and to you freely and then I in turn am asked to extend that same grace to my neighbors, uh-huh. to the poor, to the oppressed, to everyone, everyone that same, so I was hungry, did you give me something to eat? You know, I was thirsty, did you give me something to drink? Grace, grace and drink, grace and Vertically, grace horizontally. If we could capture that, we could we could we could be in the vanguard of solving this racial crisis in this country. If we could really begin to capture that, let me ask you one
1: more thing. When you say we, I'm presuming that this we has to be in other words, where there is no institution, there is no church. Uh, that this is not something that we can do corporately that the very the very way in which we've gone wrong I mean what you've described mm-hmm. with with uh, you're describing my own mm-hmm. tradition is that the as soon as we're part of an institution that is an obstruction to doing what you're saying
0: it is an obstruction And it's an obstruction because, and here we go back to Niebuhr. So, you know, in 1932, Niebuhr wrote a very important book called Moral Man and Immoral Society. And a book that had a huge influence on Martin Luther King, Jr. And the point of the book was that Moral Man Immoral Society, society, institutions, states, churches as an institution, colleges, you know, any institution is always gonna seek its own self-interest mm. and its own preservation and its own power. Well, always, it's, that's what institutions do. So you, as an individual, moral man in a moral society, if he wrote that book today, he would have said moral human beings. In right. 1930 it said moral man, but he meant moral people. So you have a conscience, I have a conscience, I have the ability to act morally, but institutions really don't. You know, they will always, and this is true of Christian colleges. (laughs) (laughs) You I know so well. Yes, you know so well, right. It's true of churches. You know, once we begin, and when we get our money invested, Mm -hmm. we build our buildings, and now we've got to protect our holdings. Mm And we lose, and and so, so Nevers the point Neaver makes to he has a whole chapter in 1932 on really a, on the question of, of race in America. And he says, he says, you know, that the power base in the United States is it's a black people can plead and beg all they want, and nothing will ever change. The only way you will ever change, as Niebuhr puts it, is to inconvenience the oppressor. Uh-huh. And that's exactly what Martin Luther King did. You know, the Montgomery Boyce Boycott. They decided to inconvenience. It doesn't have to be violent. It can yeah. be totally nonviolent. Uh-huh. But you do something to make the man see the issue. Uh-huh. So you, you boycott the buses and you bring the... You bring those businesses in, town, in downtown Montgomery. Bring them to their knees until they begin to see the point, and that's what they did. Yeah. Moral man, immoral. But your point of view is that yeah. When so when we begin to reform our churches, we build our congregations. We invest our money in these buildings. Uh oh, we're in trouble. We're in trouble now. We've got some to protect.
1: Now, this will truly be the last question. You said that you begin this book and this journey, and you did not understand John, James Noah. Uh-huh. And so now, as you, I have not read, read the book, I'm seeing it. Is it the case that the myth of white supremacy is the driving myth
0: behind these other myths? Oh, absolutely. I think it's clear as the nose in my face. The reason we don't see it, and when I say we, I mean people who look like me and like you, mm-hmm. white people, the reason we don't say it is because we never have to think about it. Uh-huh. But it operates subliminally. People, Some white people say, what do you mean white privilege? I work hard for what I get. Uh-huh. Well, that's not the point. Of course we work hard for what we get. The point is, white privilege means, for example, that when I was learning to drive in San Angelo, Texas, and I took the family car out, I never once had to worry about being stopped by a policeman, uh-huh. unless I was speeding. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. or driving recklessly. Mm -hmm. But black people, every black person I've ever met, every parent Mm -hmm. has told me, they make it a point to sit down with their children Mm -hmm. and have this little conversation. Now when you go out, you are probably going to be stopped at some point by a policeman. And here's what you need to say and what you need not to say and what you need to do and not do Mm -hmm. because you don't want to get shot. And you may get shot anyway. And you may get shot anyway. I never had that conversation. Mm -hmm. See, that's privilege. Right. That's privilege. So it's a privilege that that life is, for me, so seamless. Mm -hmm. So I I do work, of course. We work hard for what we get. I get that. We work hard. But still in all, it's a nice path for me. Mm -hmm. And I've never faced the kinds of obstacles that most black people have had to face. I've
1: always assumed that I would have gotten killed long ago if I were black and not white. Because? I've been stopped by the police. I've done all the wrong things. Mm-hmm. Get out of my car. I've actually run at the police car. Have you? <laughs> not out of politeness. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I was just being yeah. polite. It was cold.
0: Yeah, uh, you're right. You would probably wouldn't have shot.
1: Yeah. No. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> yeah.
0: We have a lot to learn. and But the only way to learn it, I think it's not by reading a book. The only way to learn it is to build friendships with black people and listen to their stories. Let them, t- let, them let them tell you what their life is like. Just listen, listen to their stories. They'll tell you if they trust you. Yeah. So we need to build relationships and form trust and listen to what they tell us.
1: Richard, it's always such a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Oh, it's a delight. Thank you very Thank you. much.
0: Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.